If you're listening to this podcast, it means you're hungry, hungry for change, hungry for growth, and ready to have a major breakthrough in your business. As a partner or founder in more than a dozen businesses that do more than $5 billion in revenue each year, Tony Robbins has learned from the best in the world, the Steve Wins, Mark Benioffs, and Peter Goobers, what it takes to be successful. Whether you've been in business for decades or are just getting started, it's important to get help from someone who's been there, someone who's going to coach you through it. That's why Tony is offering a free one-on-one business strategy session from one of his top business strategists, a $600 value, completely free, no strings attached. If you're listening right now, go to TonyRobbins.com CEO and sign up for a free session with a Tony Robbins trained business strategist who's helped business owners just like you to overcome their obstacles and set them on the path to success. In a world where 96% of businesses fail after 10 years, you must know how to anticipate and how to take advantage. Take advantage of this offer today. Hi, this is Tony Robbins with the Tony Robbins Podcast. Welcome. And this is Mary B, Tony's sidekick to the podcast. <laughs> She's a little more than my sidekick. She's my right arm. If you've read any book I do, any audio, this is the person who's behind the scenes working with me. Thank you, Mayor. We're excited for the guest today. Tell them who it is. Okay. I'm excited. Tim Ferriss. I listen to the Tim Ferriss Show, the podcast. I love it. Many of us met Timothy Ferriss in 2007 when he wrote the number one New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller, The 4-Hour Workweek. He's since written The 4-Hour Body and The 4-Hour Chef, but he's got a new book out and comes out December 6th. Tone, tell us about Tools of Titans. Yes, it's called The Tactics, Routines, and Habits of Billionaires, Icons, and World-Class Performers. You know, Tim has done 200 interviews on his podcast with some of the most brilliant people in the world, and he synthesized them. He wanted to create, take a month for himself and make sure he was using and applying the best of everything he'd learned. He wanted to create his own kind of cliff notes. And now in this one book, we get the cliff notes from the best of the best. So I'm very excited to kind of dip in and ask him first, you know, I know Tim personally. He's been a dear friend of mine for many years. And most people, when they see someone incredibly successful, they don't know what it took to get in that place. And so I want to find a little bit about what created Tim Ferriss as we know him, what makes this guy go. Also want to get into what are some of the actual tips after we learned some of his background that are some of the ones that stood out to him out of all 200 interviews. What are those strategies, those tools that you can apply to improve the quality of your life mentally, emotionally, physically, financially? And then finally, what are the questions that have unleashed most of his learnings, most of his success? Because we both agree questions are the answer. So let's get to it. The man I'm about to introduce is a dear friend. He's someone I respect immensely. Uh, he's somebody who walks his talk, and he's somebody that has had 90 million of his you know, podcasts downloaded. It's extraordinary. The one and only Tim Ferriss. How you doing, Tim? Thank you so much, guys. It's a pleasure to be here. And for those people listening after that intro, it's all downhill from here. <laughs> <laughs> Tim, it's always great to visit with you. And you've, I've been on your show three times. You've been so wonderful. And I'm excited that you're going to share the best of what you've learned in this new book, Tool of the Titans, the tactics, routines, and habits of billionaires, icons, and world-class performers. But before we get into the interviews and them, I want to get into you because uh, You're such a fascinating human being. I know you as a dear friend, but you're fascinating even as a friend. I'd love it if you'd start out by maybe telling us what's the genesis of Tim Ferriss? Where does this man come from? Where does this hunger and this drive to find answers, and not just find them, but to experiment and prove that they can be replicated? Where did did this all come from for you? I I think if I had to point to the, the origins of at least some of the habits and 
drives that I have, I would go back to first way, way back to my early childhood. I was born premature and was in the ICU for quite a long time. Still have respiratory and lung issues and scars from having blood transfusions or uh, at least having the blood oxygenated. And I was a runt. I was a runt of the litter. I was a very, very small kid up until about sixth grade. And my parents didn't have a whole lot of money. They probably made less than 50 grand or so per year combined. But what they said was, we don't have a budget necessarily for new books. We don't, I'm sorry, we don't have a budget necessarily for new bikes or BB guns or whatnot, but we always have a budget for books. And we would go to the local bookstore and look at the remainder table if we wanted to, my brother and I, get books. And that was really opening up the world of potential to me. And my parents made it very clear, if you if you study and you do well in school, you will be able to do anything that you want to do in life. That was the belief system that they set in me and my brother. And my mom always exposed us to many different things. She would take us to the beach to collect black sand with magnets. She would take us to comic book conventions. Wherever we wanted to go, she would support us and allow us then with her with her enthusiasm behind it to explore these things. She never forced us to take any piano lessons, uh, although I did take one with a friend who, who did it for free. Uh, she never forced us to count to 10 in French in front of people at a dinner party or anything <laughs> weird, weird like that. We weren't, we, we, we weren't forced to perform like trick ponies or anything. Uh, that's where I think the curiosity comes from. The, the performance aspect and the replication and all of that I think came a little bit later around the age of 14 or 15 when I began very seriously to compete in wrestling. My mom had very smartly put me as a runt into kitty wrestling because I was hyperactive and it was really the only sport where I wouldn't get my ass kicked by everybody because, <laughs> because it was, because it was weight class based, right? So it's the 60, pound weakling versus the other 60 pound weakling but one of them gets to be king of the hill or at least feel that way and what I realized pretty quickly in wrestling is that weight cutting is a very big part of the sport and if you get really good at weight cutting and by my senior season I, I was cutting from 178 at the time to 152 twice a week which oh is very my, unhealthy oh my god <laughs> oh, yeah geez. it's a it's a lot of weight and then you would rehydrate in, say, anywhere from 8 to 12 hours. Uh, and it was a very difficult practice. But to do that, and I'm not a doctor. Don't play one on the Internet. I'm not by any stretch recommending that. I think I still have some uh, some 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 uh, injuries and deficiencies because of that. But the, the point being, to pull that off with uh, and still retain some competitive edge, you had to understand sodium. You had to understand potassium-sparing diuretics. You yes. had to understand how to rehydrate sodium, uh, glycogen, all of these things. And I became, at that point, the human guinea pig. And I would test things in training that I could then apply to competition and ultimately got to the, the national stage my senior season. But it was at that point that I started I started teaching my my wrestling teammates how to use some of these tricks and realize that it was replicable. It wasn't just for the kid with the bad left lung and the thermoregulation problems. And that, that really kicked off the obsession with physical performance enhancement. And then when I got to, I ended up going to uh, Princeton, which is a funny story in of itself because my, my guidance school counselor told me I should, shouldn't even bother applying to some of these <laughs> stretch schools. And Tony, you'll appreciate this. Oh I, when I, when I, what, what I realized later, I was like, okay, first meeting, last meeting, thanks, but no thanks. What I realized later is that 
people respond to incentives. And this guy's incentive was what? It was to say what percentage of his students got into their first choice college. So how do you make that as easy as possible? You lower all the kids' expectations. You make them shoot for lower schools. It was a terrible thing. But I got into Princeton. It's terrible, right? And I went to Princeton and I I started in in the uh, neuroscience department within psychology. And I realized that all of the all of the OCD that I'd applied to physical performance could apply to mental performance. And that in fact, they're one and the same, they're interrelated. It's, it's all the same machine. And that is really where I think all of this craziness began. Well, it's, we're all grateful for the craziness. You know, you, you, it's not been an easy road for you. There was a stage you shared with me in, in college, if I remember correctly, where you're considering suicide and you talk about suicide in this book, which is not a topic most people would talk about. Tell us a little bit about that crossroads for you and how you move from weakness to strength. That was uh, the darkest, the darkest period for me, for sure. And it was hard to write about. It took me months to to write the chapter about this. But I was in my senior year, and the I'll try to keep it concise. The ultimately, there were a number of events that all happened in a short period of time. And had they been spread out, maybe I would have been able to handle it. But I. Um, I wasn't getting hired or I wasn't making it to final interviews for for a job after graduation, which was the first time I'd really failed in any type of competition like that, if that makes sense. I'd always done so well in school. Yeah. And I wasn't by, by any stretch the smartest kid at Princeton. There were many, many smarter kids. But to be completely rejected, not even – I'm not getting a passing grade. It's a yes or no. And I was getting a no. Then uh, a girlfriend at the time left – me because I was becoming too needy and insecure due to the job stuff. Then my senior thesis advisor, and it's important to understand that at many schools, including Princeton, that the senior thesis is about 25% of your four-year GPA. It is a huge deal. It is very heavily weighted. And uh, he, my senior thesis advisor wanted me to incorporate a, a huge stack of original Japanese language research into my thesis. I was then at that point in the East Asian Studies Department. And I realized I wasn't going to make my deadline. There was no way I was going to finish the thesis after trying to do it fruit, uh, with, without any success for a while. And I went in to talk to him. <clears throat> now, simultaneously with this, I got a uh, surprise job offer from Berlitz because I was interviewing one of their folks for my thesis. And he said, it's too bad that you're graduating later this year because the job opening is now. And I thought to myself, well, here's a chance to kill two birds with one stone. I can leave, work for Berlitz, get some experience, maybe have a job after school, and I can take extra time to finish my thesis. So I told my, uh, advisor this in a meeting and he flipped out and in effect he said you're just going to cop out you're going to quit okay well great if it because I, this is another talk about perverse incentives he wanted to publish some of the work that i was doing or at least present it huh. uh, and i was i was his unpaid uh, intern uh, and by delaying my graduation i was screwing up that plan at least that's what i assumed to be the case and he uh, got really furious and he said uh, if, if if you're going to take this time off which I had to because the thesis wasn't going to get done otherwise. This better be the best thesis I've ever seen in my life. And in, in effect saying, I'm going to tank. No pressure. Yeah, no pressure. And I knew, I knew it wasn't going to be the best. And he was effectively saying, I'm going to tank you if, if you leave. And so I felt like I was being a rock in a hard place. Went to the administration. I think this is when things started to, to take a turn even for the worse. Was I went to the administration because Princeton talks a lot about undergrads first, undergrads first. We focus all of our energy on the undergrads. 
went to the administration to a few different folks and their collective response was he wouldn't do that. Now, the power dynamics at an institution like that are really wonky and uh, people generally don't like to pick fights with tenured professors. It's a bad idea because they have an immunity bracelet. So <laughs> I, uh, I, was, I felt completely abandoned and deceived by the university and ultimately decided to take the year off because I didn't feel like I had a choice. And Berlitz informed me that I would be not working at the main office, which I thought I'd be doing. I would be working remotely from my home. And that is not a good thing. If you're trapped in your head to then be trapped in a house by yourself, uh, because I had two roommates who had just graduated from Princeton and were going about their normal nine to five. So they would leave and I'd be stuck in this house by myself looking at hundreds of pages on the floor. And, uh, very quickly figured out that the thesis just wasn't going to work the way that my advisor wanted me to put together. And I started to panic. Uh, I started to spiral out and tell myself these stories such as, uh, I've wasted my parents' money. They've, they and my extended family had all pitched together and I got some scholarships, but not much to get me to Princeton and, I'm going to get tanked for the senior thesis and I've wasted all of their money. I've, I've, I'm a disappointment. And if I enabled my, if I somehow contributed to ending up in this situation, I'm a failure anyway. I'm not going to succeed. Why, why would I want to be a burden to other people? And that type of thinking just got darker and darker and darker to the point where I was walking through a Barnes and Noble, just really stumbling around, not doing anything in particular. I think I was getting a coffee and I wandered in and on one of the tables was displayed a book about suicide. And I thought, huh, well, I've been looking for a miracle. Maybe this is the miracle. And I picked up the book and I read it. And for the first time in weeks, I was really excited because I felt like I'd found the answer. I was like, okay, well, coincidence or not, circumstances have conspired to bring me to find this book. Maybe so this, this book is, is about not how to prevent suicide, but how to do your own suicide. Is that what it was? It, it was a book about at the time, you know, do it yourself suicide kit. It was, it was in this, it was in the self-help section. Uh, oh, actually, no, it was in the self-hurt section. You may have seen the self-hurt section at the bookstore. So yeah, this was a book about Kevorkian and how they, wow. Yeah, uh, performed assisted suicides and things like that. So I went to the bibliography and I found all these books and I just, I was voracious. I finally found something that I was excited about because I felt like I knew what to do. And, uh, I went to Firestone library at Princeton university and, and I, uh, requested a book that I couldn't find, which was on suicide and it was out. I was like, well, that's, that's high pressure academic institution for you. Like somebody else is doing, reading it and has the same idea. Uh, hope, hope he brings so, it back. There's a waiting and, list. Yeah, right. yeah, There's a waiting list. I was like, well, I hope he brings it back. And, um, ultimately it was just sheer chance that saved me. My, I had not updated my mailing address with the registrar. So the mailing address was not going to where I was staying right outside of Princeton. It went to my home address where my parents were. Oh and my God. So a letter arrived at my parents' house that said, hi, Tim Ferriss, good news, your book on how to kill yourself just arrived at the Firestone Library. Every mother's dream. And uh, so I got a very nervous phone call from my mom, and I 
tap danced around it. I was pretty quick on my feet and I was like, oh no, that's not for me. You don't have to worry about anything. There's a friend of mine at Rutgers who, who, who doesn't have access to a library like Firestone. I was just getting it for him, blah, blah, blah. But I realized that shocked me out of my delusion. And I just realized suicide is like taking 10 times the pain that you feel and inflicting it on all the people you care about most. Exactly and right. That, I always say suicide is, a person commits suicide is literally the most self-obsessed of all, right? They're not caring about anybody but themselves. They're not thinking about the impact. It's so wonderful that snapped you out of it. Yeah, so just, I mean, one in a million, right? Pure luck I was saved from it. I mean, I... I or I, guidance, I, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to, yeah, or guidance. Like, to be clear, though, like, I had plans laid out. Everything was set to go. Like, it was just a matter of setting a date, basically. And uh, it was at that point that I through a number of different, well, let's see, what did I do? First, I decided, well, if, if mind over body isn't working, maybe I can use body over mind. And yeah. so I, I, I made, a, made it a real point to focus on athletic training with a goal. So not just exercising, but training. And it just so happened that one of my friends was going to be competing in the national kickboxing, Chinese kickboxing championships a few months later. And as a joke, he asked me if I wanted to join him. And I was like, actually, yeah, I think I would. And so I started going to this really, really, uh, dirty, tiny boxing gym in Trenton, which is not a great place. Uh, I, I was the only, I was the only guy not on work release, for instance, uh, training at the gym. And, uh, I trained my ass off and I made the focus getting out of my own head wow. and into my body. That was a big part of it. And, uh, with the shock to the system that was this conversation with my mom, I started doing something that I would end up doing a lot more later, and I still do, but I mean, I call it fear setting, but in effect, writing down what I'm considering doing, which at the time was like, you know what, if I'm going to take a year off, like, let me take a year off of the thesis or take at least a few months of not even looking at it, just being done with it. And I made a column of all the worst things that could happen if I did that bullet by bullet. And then the next column was for each of those, what I could do to minimize the likelihood of each of those happening. Then the last column was, if each of these happens, what can I do to get back to where I am now as quickly as possible? And after doing that exercise, I realized it's this whole story or collection of stories that I'd collected and underlined and bolded and exaggerated for myself were just nonsense. They were complete nonsense. Uh, and I also felt very alone and in doing research after this, just wondering what the numbers looked like. I mean, suicide is a huge problem at these schools and it's a huge it's problem. Growing. It's a growing problem as well. Unfortunately. It's, a grow it's a growing problem and these people feel like they're alone just as I did. I felt like I was this fatally flawed creature, like the one defect from the factory and everybody else had it kind of figured out and why couldn't I figure it out? And that's my reason for putting this chapter in the book is to also, of course, give different hotline options and coping mechanisms and strategies that I've used because you, you don't just, at least in my case, I don't just come out of the dark and then it's all kittens and rainbows for the rest of my life. I mean, these are, I sometimes get revisited by the storm and I'm not necessarily suicidal, but I have just darker or more melancholic periods. And so there, there's a portfolio of techniques you can use to cope with that. And uh, I wanted to include this chapter. I think it's the most important thing I've ever written, quite frankly, because these people are not alone. You're not alone if you feel that way. And it it is reversible. It is, uh, you can train yourself to 
ride those waves. And uh, that's how it came to be. I'm really grateful for you to share this because I think so many people, when they see an individual of your caliber and all that you've mastered in your life, they think that it just came to you just naturally and normally and easily. And you know what it really is, is the ability to take the dark thoughts that everyone has and put them aside because there's something that you're focused on larger than yourself. And you know, you and I share so much in common. I mean, I was a run to the litter as well. I was obsessed with books, as you well know. We've shared that over the years. But what really changed me when I was, I was not suicidal, but I certainly had my edges of where I just thought life was over, where I felt humiliated, where I felt like you know I, I had made the biggest mistakes humanly possible. But, you know, the big thing for me was radical changes in my physiology, the same as you, that instead of trying to change the mind, I changed my body and my God, it shifted everything. I, you know, you know my story. It's like going on this run when I hadn't run for three and a half years, <laughs> listening to this old uh, rock group, you know, uh, playing the song called Barracuda and running as hard as I could. I was going to throw <laughs> up, you know, with my little Walkman on the beach and my giant Walkman on the beach. But then the same thing, sitting down and getting clear about consequences. I think these are universal. Now, you said something in your book that I thought was really interesting, and I, and I love this about you, Tim. You, you talked about, hey, we're all flawed creatures. We're all imperfect. And that the most successful people usually maximize one or two strengths. What would you say are the top strengths you've maximized that have made your life so much different than it was back in those dark days? I, I think that uh, there are a few things. Uh, one is they're all related to asking questions. And what I've realized is studying questions is and improving questions is improving your thinking. Uh, and I, I owe you for one that I think of often, which is the, the, the quality of your life is determined by the quality of your questions. It's so, so true. I think I've become better at asking a handful of questions. So one is what's the worst that could happen? <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 but going through the exercise, uh, that I, that I described. And then, uh, the other is what are the, what are the assumptions and how can I test them? Like if I'm stuck or I feel like I've hit a ceiling doing something like what are my assumptions right now, including what are the stories I'm telling myself and how can I stress test them? How can I try to break them? And along with that comes another question. And of course, there are many questions. But very frequently, if I'm not sure of what to do, I'll just ask myself, all right, in X, with my, the way I'm making cold phone calls back in the day, my first job out of school was smiling and dialing, man. Oh, what a tough job that was. But <laughs> that's just thankless job. But the... Uh, Truly thankless. Um. And, and I would ask myself, what if I did the opposite just for 24 or 48 hours? What if I did the opposite? So for instance, I noticed all the other sales guys were calling between nine and five, you know, that, that was just how you did it. But who's also working nine to five, all of the gatekeepers, all of the secretaries, all of the, you know, front desks. But if I, I asked, what if I did the opposite for the next 48 hours, there's nothing to lose. I'm not getting great results as it is. So I started making my phone calls early in the morning and then after say five thirty, six o'clock. And the, it was amazing. These big companies, how frequently the presidents or the CEOs would pick yeah. up the phone. And, uh, so I started booking the most meetings and closing the most deals. Uh, so the, what if I did the opposite just for 24, 48 hours is, uh, is something that I ask myself often. So I think in terms of my strengths, one is just asking questions and very frequently they're absurd questions. Uh, as for instance, I mean, somebody who's been in the news a lot recently, but 
uh, Peter Thiel, who's yes. first investor in Facebook, just an incredible serial billionaire, very, very smart guy. I've spent some time with him and he's in Tools of Titans. Uh, he will ask questions of himself and other people such as, <clears throat> why can't you accomplish your 10-year plan in the next six months? And, 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 and you and I both know, Tony, I mean, you're a master at this. When you ask yourself these types of absurd but powerful questions, you can't, it just, it productively breaks the framework and the lens and everything that you've been using to try to solve problems up to that point because they're incompatible. You just can't apply your incremental thinking to something like that. I mean, we're both friends with Peter Diamandis, who's chairman of the XPRIZE, also in, in the book, and he will ask when founders of tech companies are hoping to get his investment, he'll ask them, if you had, if you had to 10X the economics of your business in the next, say, six months, how would you do it? And if they say that's impossible, <laughs> and you'd have to meet Peter quite, yeah. and you you have but like the guy's a force of nature, and him. like that's impossible saying that to Peter <laughs> is just guy. not wrong wrong answer. So his his response is, I do not accept your answer. Try again. <laughs> and uh, so the, I think this the the strength is asking questions, and the 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 great part about that strength is that is it is a coachable, learnable practicable skill. It's something that you work at and you can get better at very, very quickly. The, the second skill I think would be pattern recognition, honestly. Yeah, and yeah. I, and, and, and I, w I wish I had a more sophisticated way to explain it, but uh, I, I just intrinsically seem to be very good at pattern matching and pattern recognition. Yes. Uh, and, uh, even though I thought I was bad at languages for a very long time once I had a proper teacher and then spent my first time abroad, which was in Japan, which was crazy. But uh, I realized looking at Japanese characters, for instance, like I'm actually, if I believe I am good at pattern recognition instead of negating all of it by saying this lie to myself, I'm bad at languages, I'm bad at languages, I'm bad at languages, where I see nothing but problems instead of opportunities. When I started saying, well, what if I were good at pattern recognition? Maybe I am good at pattern recognition. And that opened my eyes to that ability with Japanese and Chinese characters. And I've been able to harness that as I've slowly convinced myself that I might actually be good at it. Well, you, you, your two points are so important, I think, for anybody, because first of all, you know, questions are the answers. You and I will know a better question, better answer. You know, what's wrong with me? Your brain's going to come up with tons of things. Why can't I do this? Because you're an idiot, right? But if you ask a better question, you get a better answer. And the, the most outrageous questions you said often give you the most outrageous answers. But I think it's also asking those questions with certainty. You know, it's it's not just asking the question. You don't just ask a question in a general way. I know you quite well, Tim. You ask it in an obsessive way. You expect an answer. And I think it's important that people get that. But I also think if you look at that pattern recognition capability, that's what makes anyone the best in the world of what they do, right? It's their ability to recognize patterns and more importantly, utilize them. And I think a skill you and I share is then create patterns, like to pull from, if you're going to play the piano, you start by learning other people's patterns. But once you learn enough other people's patterns, there's this internal synthesis, as you know, that occurs where now you bring you to it and you're able to create something that never existed before, standing on the shoulders of those you've learned from. So I think those two are, are absolutely critical. Tell me about the book now. Tell me, you know, you hadn't written a book for five years. You know, I didn't write one for 20 years at one point. It's not my favorite experience. What I was thrilled to hear when you and I talked was that you were in, started enjoying writing this book. Tell me, why'd you write this book? You know, what's, what's 
different about this than for our work week than you know for our body etc for our chef and what, how did you enjoy this one so much more what was the difference in the process for you tim uh yeah i was not intending at all on writing a uh writing a book so i had given up on books basically <laughs> after the four hour chef i was so bloodied and battered and just <laughs> you <tired> too writing <laughs> Just so tired of writing. And keep in mind, I mean, just for comedic effect, I, uh, after my whole experience with the senior thesis in college, I had vowed to myself never to write anything longer than an email ever again. So you, you can see how well that worked out. Um, <laughs> like these, these, these books you can use, like kettlebells or doorstops for self-defense. But but the uh, I was not planning on writing a book. I didn't want to write a book. And that's how the podcast started. You know, the Tim Ferriss show started because I wanted to try something loose. I wanted to try something I controlled completely where I could just basically goof off and have fun and try to get better at asking questions. And the book ended up becoming a book, in this case, Tools of Titans, because I'd set aside an entire month. Uh, I My mother had never been to Paris. My dad had, hadn't been since the 60s. And I wanted to take them to see the July 15th, basically it's the 4th of July, fireworks, the Eiffel Tower, and so on. I just, just life is short. And you know, by the time you're out of high school uh, or out of college, you've spent basically 80 plus percent of the hours that you'll ever spend with your parents. Uh, so it's, it's the tail end. And so I took them there and I set aside the entire month for one thing. And this was to go through all of my notes. And I've seen your notebooks. This is this is, this is a cheat, by the way, that, that I use too. Write it down. It's It sounds silly, but the, the way that I've been able to spot a lot of the most powerful patterns is by having notebooks and writing these things down. When someone like Peter Thiel asks me, why can't you achieve your 10-year plan in the next six months? I don't just think about it for 20 seconds and then move on to my next latte. I write that down and then I'll sit down for an hour and maybe have a glass or two of wine to loosen things up and I'll freehand and I'll try it. I'll really think about it, but I'll think about it on paper. Yes. And so you what I want to do. No, no, I, I got to interject here because Tony does not think about it on paper. Yes, he has an impressive stack of moleskins. I mean, cabinet. I mean, room of mole of journals from ages and ages. But Tim, this guy goes crazy. I mean, if he if he hears a question that gets him going, it's like nothing is safe. No mirror, no tablecloth. I'll open drawers. There's sharpies, sharpies scribbled in drawer, kitchen cabinets. I'm like, dude, come on. What am I supposed to tell your wife? Keep it in a note. Keep a journal handy. I believe it. I believe it. You know, the worst is when I write something that I think is really important on my hand, and then I go to a restaurant. I'm like, no, 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 this is important. It's on my hand. And then I wash my hands, and I'm like, oh my god, I lost two words. What did you say? But so. So, so I write all this stuff down. So I had just thousands of pages of notes from all these interviews. And uh, I had also hundreds and thousands of pages of notes, uh, 10,000 plus pages for transcripts. But I had notes on advice that these guests had given me after the podcast or outside of the podcast. I had all this stuff. And I wanted to put together for myself the ultimate notebook, like the notebook to end all notebooks, the cliff notes of all of these performers because I felt anxious when I would do say two interviews or three interviews in a week and I wouldn't have time to absorb and test some of this stuff. 
and I wanted to test all of it because I'm a crazy person. And uh, that is what I proceeded to do. So I'd set aside a month just for myself, not for anybody, to put together this Cliff Notes, this cheat sheet to the habits and routines and favorite books and favorite documentaries and so on of all these incredible people. And when I got about halfway through it and putting it together, uh, no book deal, no nothing. This is just for me. I realized, good God, I mean, this is exactly what my listeners and readers have been asking me for. And, and the, the, way I, the way that I mean that is, what do I get asked all the time? I get asked, if you were to, to rewrite the four-hour work week, what would you change? What would you add to it? Are you ever going to write a follow-up? Four-hour body, what, what's changed? What would you add to it? What would be different? Four-hour chef, same thing. And, and the Tools of Titans answers all of that. <laughs> it's basically it's the sequel to all three books. Because it's it's broken into healthy, wealthy, and wise. So healthy, it's all the stuff that I would have put into a new edition of the Four Hour Body. Wealthy, it's all the stuff basically that I would have put into a new edition of the Four Hour Work Week, maybe minus case studies. Then wise, I mean, Four Hour Chef being a book about accelerated learning, same story. And the reason that I decided to turn it into a book also is that I I feel like my my some of my message has been misinterpreted by uh, a small percentage of my my followers or readers. Uh, and quite frankly, I don't blame them because I think I've changed myself over the last five years quite a lot. And specifically... That, that, I wanted I, to ask you, Tim, I'm going to point you in one direction because I know I love how I read your blog, I listen to the podcast, and I love how open you are actually about... I mean, it's tough when you have your whole life kind of between a blog and a podcast. You're out there. So it's tough being I, a guy with insecurities, I think, too. In, honest insecurities about, like, basically, I, I love this note about your human. editor. Being human. <laughs> yeah. You know, having somebody proof your work. And I know even when Tony's writing a book, it's like, you know it's you know it's gold, Tone. But still, it's like, you, I can feel it in you. I can feel it in both of you guys. Like, hey, do you, is this, did I do something? Is it all here? Also, is there stuff that you look back on, a blog post or even things in previous books that makes you feel like, that makes you cringe or that makes you, you at least wonder, who wrote that? Like, was that, am I the same guy? Because with all these years of, of <laughs> interviews comes growth, comes transformation. Is there stuff you look back on and you're like, whoa, I was a different dude back then? Or no? Oh, yeah. Yo, there's a ton of it. And I think that up to this point, or not this point, but up until a few years ago, I was really focused on goal achievement and just accumulating trophies and titles and not not in a prideful way necessarily, but I was very focused on the optimizing of goal achievement, period, and end of story. And we could call that success. Let's just call that what most people would envision as success. But I've come to realize that if if you focus solely on achievement and not appreciation, not gratitude, you are never you never feel fulfilled. You never feel content because you're so fixated on the future as you have to be if you're just planning, planning, planning for the next thing, the next thing, next thing. You actually have a very anxiety infused existence. There's a constant low grade anxiety uh, being trapped in the future tense. And in the last five years. And I mean, we, we could get into it. Certainly, I've had some supervised uh, experiences with, let's call it plant medicine, that I write about in the book with the help of a number of doctors. But I've also uh, had a number of observed, a, a number of tragedies in my life. I've had friends, I'm at an age now where 
people are dying. Yes. And uh, sometimes it's natural causes. Sometimes, super sad story, a friend of mine was with his, his newlywed and they were climbing Kilimanjaro and a rock came tumbling down, hit him in the head, dead on the spot. And I've realized that you're not guaranteed a long life on this planet. And for that reason, you don't want to wait to redeem things later. It doesn't work, A, but B, you're not guaranteed to get there. So for me, I've, I've really tried to cultivate practices and processes and habits to cultivate enjoying and appreciating what I have now. Because if I can't do that, nothing I ever get will make me feel happy. Uh, and it's be, it, I've just become, I, I've realized that it's not like appreciation is 90% of it and a I'm sorry, that achievement is 90% of it and appreciation is like, yeah, you need it, but it's like 10% and then you're fine. You're good to go. No, no, no. It's at least 50-50. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and my experience in the last couple of years, and you and I have talked about it, is success without fulfillment is the ultimate failure. You know, how, how many guys do you and I know that we've interviewed that have yep. genius in so many areas, have added so much value to so many people? You know, it's the Robin Williams metaphor, right? Made everybody happy except himself. And so, yep. you know, I would argue that it's more than 50%. I think our culture, you know, for especially for those who've had achievement upbringing at some level or their upbringing was a difficult upbringing and they went for achievement as a way to pull themselves out of it, that our culture reinforces achievement of being much more important than fulfillment, which is really just appreciation, which is really just gratitude. And you and I both know without that, there's nothing. The two emotions that dominate people's lives, a majority, and create havoc in their lives and their relationships and their business is feeling angry, that's number one, and you can't be angry and grateful simultaneously, and the other one is fear, being fearful. And when you're fearful, you almost always make the wrong decision, and you can't be grateful and fearful simultaneously. So I think this process that you, I've seen it in you too, and I'm, I'm not with you every day, but I can, you can hear it in you, you can feel it in you, it's something that is a friend of yours that I'm so thrilled to see you have, and it's something that I'm doing in my own life as well, and I hope our listeners hearing from both of us as crazy ass overachievers that want to know the answer to everything now that to realize that there's got to be a segment of your life where you linger a little bit, where you take in a little bit, where you stop and, and you taste life, not just keep pursuing the next thing. And that's not stopping and just sitting at the table of success too long. So you're bored or you're not growing. It's just that delicate balance that you're seem to be finding in your life right now. Yeah, it absolutely. And you mentioned Robin Williams. I, I remember very, very specifically when Robin Williams died. I mean, he's a San Francisco native, effectively. I, I spend most of my time in San Francisco and I was with my girlfriend at the time and I kind of freaked her out. But I was like, look, you don't have to worry about me. But when when he died, I remember thinking, and this is going to sound weird maybe to some people, but I was like, I get it. Like it, people were just completely dumbfounded. How could this happen? This is just crazy. I can't even conceive of how this is possible. And I was like, I get it. Like I've been, I've been in that weird, like demonic Alice in Wonderland mindset where like everything good looks bad. Everything you do looks like a weakness. I mean, I've been in that delusional state. And, uh, I think that in large part it stems, especially if you're predisposed to a, in, in, a sole focus on achievement. That is just a recipe for disaster. And for me, what's, what's been a revelation is realizing that, you know, gratitude, appreciation, they sound like woo woo stuff that you have to go to Northern California to like dive into <laughs> with a di di you need like a didgeridoo and some crystals. It's like, no, no, no. 
if, if you find all of that and even those words really unpalatable, right, as a type A driven personality, which I did for a long time, I was like, are you kidding me? Like meditation? Are you kidding me? Like, no, we could talk about that. But the uh, you have 80 percent of the people that you've interviewed, the 200 people that are the most influential icons, billionaires, don't they all have some form of meditation they do? They have some form of meditation or mindfulness, yeah. and I would consider your state priming mindfulness by my definition, which is setting uh, putting yourself in a state where you become more aware of your thoughts and your emotional state so that you can steer both of them in a particular direction. I think that that is something that at least 80% of the people I've interviewed do, and these are hard charging folks. I mean, these are not, uh, yes. these are not all kind of, uh, namaste yoga teacher. I'm going to take the next 10 months off and look, I, I love yoga, a lot of yoga. I'm really into something called acro yoga. But the point being that if you're type A and driven, you can view certain practices such as mindfulness meditation, whether that's listening to one track on repeat, which a lot of people like coders and rock climbers do as, as I talk about in the book, this, this repetition of tracks. Yes. For, for zone, which is kind of like a mantra that you just make external. It's very interesting. The, the, um, there are folks who will view that piece, the practice of gratitude, and that could be use, using something like the five-minute journal in the morning when you just write down, I am grateful, four, bullet, 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 three things, that's it, is, is recovery. And this is kind of a hard, it's, it's a different way to frame it. For people who are like, ah, like I'm all about success, I don't need that crap, that's for weak people. You can think of these these periods where you shift gears to appreciation, gratitude, mindfulness, breath, uh, changing your physiology through cold exposure, whatever it might be, as recovery and treat your brain like you would treat your body. No ultra endurance runner is going to run 24 hours a day. It doesn't work because you need to recover and then you get stronger. And similarly with the yeah, exactly. And with the brain, it, it's no different. You have a limited supply of physical substrates like neurotransmitters. And if you're burning the candle at both ends, you need recovery periods so that you can then get stronger just as you would in the gym. And these serve that purpose. So you end up being more capable of achieving and success when you take some time to dedicate to practices like these. It's not uh, it's not a subtraction. It's an addition or a multiplication. Tell me, tell me, you know, of all the people that you've interviewed, and I get asked this question all the time as well. Obviously, we have a diverse world you and I have entered into and that we've pursued. Who are two or three that you know maybe surprised you the most? Like you learned things from that in a way different than you expected, and then and what are some of the most unusual patterns that you found around wealth or health or wisdom that you want people to really grab out of this book? What are some of the ones that stand up for you? One thing that you shared with me earlier was that you've had so many different friends read the book and they all come up with you know what's their top ten percent. It's different for everybody, but I'm talking yeah. about for you. Who are the two or three that surprised you the most? What did you pull from them, and what are a couple of the patterns that really for you have been in that top ten percent that they they've become a part of your life in some way? Yeah, let me. So I'll answer that in reverse order, just because the 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 latter jumps to mind immediately. Um, and this is another. This also corrects another common misconception. So, uh, the vast majority—I mean, ninety percent plus—of the people in the book uh, get eight to ten hours of sleep per night, and they prioritize sleep or have learned to pri- prioritize sleep. And these are sometimes people who grew up 
going for the gold with four hours, six hours, uh, or you closer to four. Now I should also just note in a second, cause I'm going to make some particular recommendations, but for every possible pattern in this book, there is someone who does the opposite. And I find that really reassuring because it means you don't have to wake up at 4.30 in the morning like Jocko Willink necessarily. There are a lot of <laughs> early <God>. risers. <laughs> yeah, you, there are a lot of early risers, but you don't have to be a Navy SEAL commander. Uh, I'm going to bed at 4.30 kind of guy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so, so thank God there are a couple of people in the book who are like, what? I don't know. I'm not even coherent until 11 a.m. And then I go to sleep at 4. I'm like, oh, whew, thank God I have an out. But, but the sleep is a, is a consistent pattern, and they'll use – a number of devices popped up a lot, and, I, and I'd never heard of them before I was told of them. So Rick Rubin, legendary music producer, as well as Kelly Starrett, CrossFit training superstar, among other things. And a bunch of seemingly unrelated folks recommended something called the Chili Pad, for instance. And this Chili Pad is a thin sheet that you put under your own sheet on your side of the bed if you're sharing it with someone. And it solves it solves the two people running at two different uh, temperature problem with like tearing off blankets and changing who wants to open the window, close the window, all that goes away. But you can then set your temperature uh, of your bed to anywhere between 55 degrees and I want to say 85. And you find your ideal sleep temperature. And this has been a complete game changer. I have one now and it is just an incredible tool. You don't realize what good sleep is oftentimes until you get this temperature uh, variable right. Um, other folks have had these weird cocktails. For instance, Dr. Seth Roberts, the late, great Seth Roberts, uh, PhD from Berkeley, he figured out, he did a lot of self-experimentation, and he figured out uh, this cocktail that now thousands of my fans have used, and I'll just tell you what it is. It is a pre-bed cocktail for those people who have insomnia or just want to get to bed and have a, a solid night's sleep. It is two tablespoons of apple cider vinegar. I use the Dr. Bragg stuff with the mother and so on uh -huh. that you get it at any, any Whole Foods or wherever. Uh, then a tablespoon of raw honey dissolved into hot water, and that's it. You just drink that. Now, I honestly, I have theories, but I do not have a good explanation for why this works. Yet, I have had hundreds of my fans say, I've tried everything. Nothing has worked. This stuff knocked me out like an elephant tranquilizer dart. Wow. And, yeah, so Colin's getting one of those tonight. I'm making, oh, yeah. it, I'm making it myself. Yeah, so go, go figure, right? Uh, the, in terms of surprising folks, and there are, there are a bunch of, of, of odd patterns, uh, like the listening to music, one track on repeat over and over and over again, if they're trying to focus or get into flow, that's super consistent. And so I provide the, uh, I have a, a two pages called the soundtrack of excellence where I just share the music that these people play on repeat. It's pretty wild. That's, really wild. Uh, that's a, that's a weird I, one I wrote that, I, that I use for the same track over and over again. Oh, no <laughs> kidding. Was insane. it Barracuda yes. or was it something what else? Was it? <laughs> no, it was Elton John's, uh, uh, what's the one that, uh, Norma Jean <laughs> over and over and over. Oh, nice. I know what a bizarre thing. I was 24. I don't know what the hell well, was going on. I just, I think in those days it was, you had a CD player and it got stuck. So I just let it go. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, it's unconscious, but anyway, uh, continue. So, so one of the guests who really surprised me uh, was a doctor, a palliative care physician named B.J. Miller. That means, for those people who don't know, I didn't know, he helps people die. He is a hospice physician, and he's very credible. He's, he's affiliated with UCSF, but he also talk. ran something called the... 
Yeah, he's incredible. Uh, and he he runs something called the Zen Hospice Project, or did at the time, uh, based in the Bay Area. Now he he has some history that I knew quite a bit about because he was a he also went to Princeton a few years before me. He and his buddies were coming home from a late night, and there's a tiny little commuter train that's nicknamed the Dinky at uh, on Princeton University campus that then takes you to Princeton Junction, and it always looks off if it's not in use. Uh, but he climbed up on top of it just as a joke with his buddies and he had a big watch on and he was electrocuted and it burned off three of his limbs. So he is a, he's a triple amputee. And he, and in this conversation, I asked him uh, a million questions, but what surprised, he, what surprised me, there were many things that surprised me. Uh, he had some great answers to certain questions. Like I asked just about everybody, what would you put on a gigantic billboard, a short message if you want, or a word, anything that you wanted to convey to millions of people? And he said, don't believe everything that you think. And I was like, ooh, yeah, that's a, so that's, that is a good one. And he also, uh, I'm not going to say contradicted, but he, um, he told me in practical environments where he's helped a thousand people to die that what we read in these lists that every year seem to appear, like the top eight regrets of the dying and stuff like that, that uh, you, you tend to hear what you would expect, right? They're like, well, I, I'm glad I spent all my time with family and yeah, I would never say that I regretted spending less time in the office. And it's always the same five or six things. And uh, he, when I asked him what he would do, for instance, uh, or if he were to give two or three things to someone in his hospice facility who didn't want to interact with others to help them through their transition, what would he do? And he, he named some music, this, that, and the other thing. But one was a book of Mark Rothko paintings. And I asked him why. And for those people who haven't seen the art, it's abstract. It's colored. Oh, my yeah. gosh. It's squares. Yes. It's big orange yeah. squares, yeah. red squares. Big, big, big orange squares. $50 million, I, $80 million. Yeah, $50 million. And I asked him why. And he said, because... When you're going through, and I'm paraphrasing here, of course, but when you're going through a transition to death and you're terminal, the, the instinct is to try to find a why. What is the reason? Why is this happening to me? What is the purpose? What is the reason? And he's actually found it's extremely therapeutically valuable for people to ponder the beauty of purposelessness. So this is interesting, right? Wow, he's, very different. So he wants people to to learn to appreciate the aesthetic beauty and profundity of meaninglessness, of of purposelessness, that it's not necessarily a bad thing, even though our modern society often thinks of it that way, that that can be extremely beautiful and the serendipity involved and so on can be magical in a sense in and of itself. And uh, I was also asking what tends to bring people out of funks if they were in a depressive period because they knew they were going to die. And his answers were all the small things. He said, for instance, uh, baking cookies together was his go-to. Baking cookies together was the number one, uh, or at least one of the top, because you don't have a cookie on behalf of anything else. It is not There is no future tense. You enjoy a cookie in the presence period, the smells, the sounds of the kitchen, the taste for the present, period, full stop. And I, that was also very thought-provoking for me. He does something, and this is, this is one of those patterns when I was writing Tools of Titans that I spotted and I was like, oh my God, that's so crazy that these two guys separated across oceans 
completely unrelated, Ed Cook, who's a memory champion. He's, he can memorize a shuffled deck of cards in like 40 seconds. He's incredible. Wow. And then, uh, and he's trained other people to do that, which is even crazier. Then you have BJ Miller and they both do something that I ended up calling for myself star therapy. And I still do this every night that I can. And what BJ would do is he, each night when he was feeling anxious or overwhelmed or, or you name it, whatever it is, upset, angry, he would look up at the stars and he would just ponder and consider how the light hitting his eye could be thousands of years old. And perhaps the stars that he's seeing don't even exist anymore. And when he, and he has a handful of other guidelines for it that he uses for himself. But when you start to p ponder the enormity, just the, the grand scale of the universe as we know it, which may not even be the whole picture, right? Then when the fact that you're pissed off because someone cut you off in the salad line <laughs> just bec just becomes laughably yes. ridiculous, you know, or the, or the fact that like, oh, my God, I'm so pissed because this guy canceled a meeting on me last minute. It just sounds so childish and trivial and ridiculous that you were able to get past it. And I found it incredibly effective. Uh, and I trust me, like I am a by the numbers calculating type A placebo control, double blind, all of that. Like I, I'm a, I am a maniac for that stuff. And so I, I would, if my like 20 year old self could hear me talking about star therapy, just vomit into his, you know, onto his shoes. But, but I'm here to tell the younger me and everybody else, like it, it's incredibly effective. And the fact that it occurs twice, Ed Miller, uh, Ed Miller, Ed Cook does something very similar in a relatively small sample size, right? 200 of these world-class performers in disparate areas from different cultures, that is a, a gingerbread trail worth following and investigating. And tell so me there's a lot of that. Tell me something, because I know we're going to run out of time on your interview. I want to touch on one more. You've given us some great wisdom. This is healthy, wealthy, and wise in this book in terms of chunking. Give us something on the wealthy side. I know you've very smartly invested in Uber and Facebook early on. How'd that come about? Is there a proximity to that? And what would be a wealth insider, too, that would grab somebody's attention? Because my goal yeah. is to have them listen and immediately, I mean, you go pick up this book for the cliff notes of 200 interviews by itself. My God, I mean, this is this is truly, this is the master's work that all of you get a chance to listen to. But how about one in the area of wealth as well? Yeah, yeah, I'll give a couple of quick ones. So the, the first is pick a game that you can win. <laughs> and what I mean by that is, for instance, if you look at, and you know a lot of these top financiers and hedge fund managers and wealth managers, you need an advantage, or at least you you need to not have a disadvantage. And what I mean by that is, you can you can have an analytical advantage, you can have an informational advantage, which I had with startups living in San Francisco. I could engineer my circumstances so that I was in the middle of this the the switch box basically. Uh, you can have a behavioral advantage. For instance, if you look at Warren Buffett, people are like, I can do everything that Warren Buffett does. It's not that hard. And I'm like, well, Warren Buffett is be able to be emotional and not respond to swings in the market. He does. He is not subject to Mr. Market. And I remember hearing this story, I don't know if it's true, but it was written in his biography about how he would come home every day after work, walk up the stairs, sit down and read annual reports and so on, uh, or filings. And at one point, he came home, walked up the stairs. His son, I think, was splayed out like a ski accident on the stairs, like, oh! And he stepped over his son, walked up the <laughs> stairs, sat down, started reading his reports. 
And then he came back like five minutes later and he's like, are you okay? But he's very Spock-like. That is a, that is a behavioral advantage. And, he's also uh, put a structural advantage and that's good for people to remember too because I'm, I'm writing another book myself right now called Unbreakable. And you know, if, you have a, if you're a great pilot and you know everything about flying, you still have a checklist because it's just too important. And you have a co-pilot usually who has a checklist and just in case you screw up. If it's that important a flight, you've got passengers. And, yep. you know, Charlie Munger is that other balance for him. You know, it's it, he's, put, he's put that person who's kind of, you know, attacks his ideas. Same thing, you know, with, you know, Ray, you know, if you if you look at uh, Bridgewater and you see here's the largest hedge fund on the face of the planet, 165 billion in assets, when a big hedge fund might be 16 billion, he's 10 times bigger. And you watch what Ray's done and he's set up, you know, 1,800 employees to kind of attack his best ideas to make sure it's there. So it's having that... Yep balance outside of themselves besides the emotion that's so critical totally and so just because you mentioned it uh what ray does uh inside bridgewater is very similar to what mark andreessen who's serial you know (laughs) basically serial billionaire and uh, a co-author of the first popular graphical web browser so if you use a browser on a computer you are (laughs) experiencing the influence of mark andreessen uh, he will also practice what Ray does, and he calls it red teaming, which is also used in the military. So Stan McChrystal, retired four-star general, also talks about this, where you will take a team, take a portion of your team and their job as the red team is to attack your ideas or attack your position or attack your defenses. So if you have a big company or you just have a business plan, get some of your friends. Their job, you're the blue team, they're the red team. Their job is to destroy your company. Uh, and if people have bigger companies, you should take the scrappiest 20 year olds in your company. And this is actually Peter Diamandis's advice and have them red team how to disrupt and, and take out your company. Uh, but other, other, uh, advice that I think is really helpful. And actually this is in your pro- profile actually, because I thought it was so genius is related to your observation that the, these icons, these incredible success stories, Richard Branson, who has a very, very, uh, Indiana Jones, like, uh, image, of course, uh, you look at some of these folks like Carl Bass, these these incredible billionaires. And if you if you look how the, at how they talk versus how, say, financially unsuccessful people talk, very f- financially unsuccessful or dissatisfied people often say things like, you need to spend money to make money, man, like nothing ventured, nothing gained. You got to risk big to make it big. And if you look at any of the people I just named, as well as a lot of people in this book, they are always capping the downside. They are always minimizing the risk. And the first thing they look at is like, okay, we're going to start an airline in the case of Richard Branson. All right, let me figure out how to call up Boeing and negotiate a lease so that I can return this damn thing (laughs) if it doesn't work out. And, uh, the same is true with my startup investing. I'm constantly capping the downside. What is the maximum that I can lose? Can I afford to lose it? How can I? I basically go through the fear setting exercise when looking at these things. So that's really, I think, a key observation. And then another one is don't be afraid to try what you're not qualified to do. <laughs> and and I'll, give you an ex- and I'll give you an example. Chris Saka, who I watched go from making, I don't know, making this up, but probably a hundred grand a year to now being a billionaire. I've, I've been friends with him the whole time. I watched it happen. And when he was at Google, he's an incredible investor now and has a bunch of funds and so on. Uh, but he will, he will probably have the most successful venture capital fund of all time, which is lowercase one, which I was lucky enough to be a part of. But the, 
when he was working at Google, this was one of his kind of first gigs out of college, very smart guy, but <laughs> Google was, I'm guessing, a few hundred people at the time. He would walk into any meeting with higher-ups and just sit down and start taking notes. He was not invited to these meetings, keep in mind. He would just show up and the, and, 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 and the, one, and the wonder twins, and the wonder twins, which is the nickname for Sergey and Larry, the co-founders of Google, and they'd kind of look at each other and be like, what the hell is this guy doing here? What are you doing here? And he'd say, oh, I'm sorry. I, I, I wasn't invited to this, but I thought I'd just take notes for you guys. Is that okay? And he actually – he didn't pull it off every time, but he pulled it off enough that people just began to expect him to, to be there. So he learned how the entire business worked and his learning uh, – his exponential curve of learning was 100x, 1,000x all of his – sort of cohort of colleagues who came in at the same time as early as those early hires. And that has been his, one of his game plans from day one. And Naval Ravikant, another guy in the book, who's one of the most successful angel investors in the world period, as well as entrepreneurs. He said to his brother once who told me this, if I always did what I was qualified to do, I'd be pushing a broom somewhere. <laughs> uh, so if if you can cap the downside, this is an important part of it, right? Like don't – I'm not suggesting like, oh, you're unqualified to do options trading. Yeah, try that and don't worry about it. No, like cap the downside, uh, figure out where you have an advantage ideally. But if you don't, don't be, afri don't be afraid to test what you're unqualified to do as long as you've answered the question, what's the worst that can happen? How can I get back to where I am if something goes sideways? Figure that stuff out. But that is one of the magic tricks of probably – everyone in this book, I would say. Well, the whole concept of asymmetrical risk reward, I think is one of the single most important things that I learned from these groups as well. It's how do I have the least amount of risk with the most upside? And if you can organize your life that way, because otherwise you're, you're, you're going for the grand slam home run and you're going to strike out and strike out and strike out. And that's what makes the difference, you know, between the very best investors in the world. So tell me that for those listening, we're talking again, Tools of the Titans is the new book, The Tactics, Routines, and Habits of Billionaires, Icons, and the World-Class Performers by Tim Ferriss. Tim, Mary has another question for you. Okay. Yeah, Tim, I want to know, you just told us a little bit earlier in this interview that the podcast was really born out of your frustration or your general fed-upness with writing. You said you were going to write an email again. We all know. Like you said, you write kettlebells, just like Tony here. You guys, I mean, you can't write a book under 600 pages. I'm convinced. Neither of you. Yeah. cut from the same yeah. cloth. So I just wonder, you know, you're up to 200 episodes. Is the podcast, what, is, what does the future for Tim Ferriss look like? Do you, is the podcast something you love to do? you got your new TV show coming up as well. I'd like yeah. To yeah, I do. I'm sorry I, do. I couldn't I, do that and got our timeline there. No, no, no worries. There, there, there will probably be a season two, I think. The, the, the podcast is something I absolutely love. It is my favorite part of book writing without the writing. <laughs> and Tony, you know exactly what I'm talking <laughs> I, I about. I know exactly what Ta you're talking about. Talking to experts and asking them all my questions and then not having to write a book about it? Oh my God. <laughs> now, of course, that didn't quite work out. But the uh, just as a funny side note, so I remember I was like, all right, I'm going to do I'm gonna do a light book. This is going to be a short book. And I was like, what I'm going to do is just going to be great one-liners from all these guests People will be able to read it in 45 minutes. It'll be one of those tiny little books at the checkout counter. It'll be great. And then I got into it, and of course, I see it, and I'm like, are you kidding me? I can't rip these people off. Like, one quote? They're not even going to understand the context. It'll sound good, but like, oh, God. All right, I'll make, it a little, I'll, make it a little bit, I'll make it a little bit longer. A little bit longer, and yeah, here we are, 704 pages. But the um, 
The podcast for sure, because I love doing it. I'll keep doing that. I have no plans to stop that. The TV show is another experiment. It's called Fear Less with less in parentheses. And uh, Vince Vaughn, the actor, director, producer, is a big fan of the podcast. So he reached out to me and his team reached out to me. And uh, that will be coming out in May. We've already filmed the first season. It's going to be awesome. Uh, I had a bunch of uh, incredible folks on like David Blaine and there's a long list. And uh, what what does the future hold in store for Tim Ferriss? Well, I will tell you, I've approached this a little bit differently and I've, I've, I've changed how I look at the future in a lot of ways. So I used to try to spec out five-year plans, 10-year plans, 20-year plans, you name it. These days, as long as I have decided on what my values are and, you know, morally, for instance, what I will do, what I won't do, what I'll accept and what I won't accept, then I really focus on, generally speaking, six to 12 month projects and experiments where I do my absolute freaking best to put out something of value into the world. And then I wait to see which doors open. Because what I've noticed is whenever I try to make a five-year plan, for that five-year plan or 10-year plan to be remotely reliable, I have to shoot below my 100%. Does that make sense? Yeah, like if, I, I, sure. if, if I'm swinging for, a fence, for the fences, I'm going to whiff some. I'm going to miss some. But if I want a reliable five to 10-year plan in detail, then I'm going to have to aim for, say, 80% of my capacity so that I don't have those foul balls. And I don't want to live that way, number one. I'm happy to take the you know the hardball to the face every once in a while if I'm able to really go for it and enjoy the uncertainty in a way that comes with that, which is is also something that you have to train yourself to get more comfortable with. The second uh, part of that is that every time, like with the four-hour work week, if I had tried to spec out like a five-book, 10-year plan for being the four-hour work week email management guy, oh my God, like kill me now. Like I'm so glad I didn't do that. Uh, I would have lost so much flexibility and adaptability and couldn't have even conceived of any of this stuff happening. I mean, even when I started the podcast, I couldn't have conceived of the possibility that I would be sitting here right now with a huge book about this podcast that I could not be happier with. I mean, this is just, this is such a joy for me to write. And talking to Tony Robbins as a friend who <laughs> inspired me and guided me through books and uh, personal power and beyond starting in high school. I mean, this is just for me a dream come true. And if I had tried to plan based on my incomplete set of information and false assumptions and self-handicapping beliefs and all of that stuff at any point in the last five, 10, 15 years, I wouldn't have had this wonderful experience. So for me, the short answer is, I have no idea. <laughs> and, and, I love and, that. I'm, and I'm totally okay with it. I'm totally okay I, with you know, that. I look at my own life and I can remember early in my life, my you know teens, my 20s, I was so obsessed with being precisely clear about what exactly my objective was. And same things happened for me over the years. What I learned as time came by is I know the mountain I'm heading towards. But whether I'm going to go over it, around it, through it, I'm going to stop and pause on it, all those things, keeping the flexibility of that opening is how life unfolds as opposed to trying to control life. Because you can control life, like you say, but you're going to get a much smaller return than when you stay open to your own essence, the essence of life, the essence of guidance, and see what shows up. So tell yep. me just to finish up, because I know I'm gone past our time here, but 
I'm just curious, what do you, I, I think I have a good sense because I can see your friend, but what do you do? What makes you laugh out loud? What do you do for pure fun outside of learning and growing? Uh, what gives you joy outside of what most people know about Tim Ferriss? What gives me joy? I, I really enjoy uh, embarrassing myself on purpose. So <laughs> uh, I, I really have tried, and this is partially a, uh, as a result of, of really learning from folks like B.J. Miller, the hospice physician that we were talking about, is to really not just embrace the absurdity, but like enjoy the absurdity and sometimes create the absurdity. Uh, and I might go in, for instance, like if I'm just feeling wacky one day and I'm like, you know what? Today is a little boring. I need to spice things up and laugh more. I might just walk into a Starbucks and lay down on the floor for 10 minutes and people will like, and they'll come over and they'll like, eventually someone will come over and be like, no, 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 I'm fine. I'm just resting. And like, I'll just wait and just look at the complete bewilderment and puzzlement around me. 10 minutes, I'm probably not going to make 10 minutes, but like you could lay down for 20 seconds. That's perfectly sufficient to weird everybody out and do no one any harm, but to like walk away and finding it incredibly hilarious. So that would be, you know, something like that. Or I have, uh, absurd outfits. Uh, I have a white cowboy hat, uh, that I'll sometimes wear just to like the airport. It just to see what happens. I'll wear a white cowboy hat on and like a white cowboy hat with flip flops and walk around and just see these looks like even in San Francisco, for God's sake, they're like, what the hell is this guy doing? Uh, I love that stuff. Or I mean, this is maybe a maybe a, a, a an easier way that people can experiment with this. But I'll put out just nonsensical stuff on Twitter or Facebook just to see how people respond. I mean, I will put out things that could not possibly be taken literally by anyone, but of course it's the internet. So it's taken literally by like 10% of the people out there. And, and they'll uh, argue over what it means, right? Oh yeah, they'll argue over what it means. And uh, so, so really embracing the absurdity. And in fact, I've, uh, I've started reading a lot about uh, mythology in different cultures as related to, tr to trickster gods. And uh, trickster gods are interesting because they're, they very often get themselves in trouble, but they're more often than not the bridge between the human realm or the animal realm and the deity godlike realm, uh, the realm of the other. And they, they're, the, they're the boundary walker. They have one foot in either side. And they, they sometimes have things blow up in their face, Wile E. Coyote style. That happens quite a bit. But they... Also, in some instances, say, bring fire to humans or bring knowledge to humans or uh, actually create. They're very often part of the creation myth in many of these mythologies. And uh, I'm not at all saying that uh, I, I'm close to a god. I mean, I'm a lesser human at best, often closer to an animal probably. Uh, but the I do think there are lessons to be taken from that and the just – embracing the absurdity, embracing the uncertainty and learning to surf those waves as opposed to resist them and try to mold everything in your reality to your will, which is a, uh, it's a, it's a very, very, uh, futile exercise and you don't have to live that way. And in fact, like you said, Tony, uh, being open to the possibilities to be open to possibilities and to seize those opportunities, you have to see clearly. So anything that I can do to help people to see more clearly, whether that's their own self-limiting beliefs or that the what they think are their rules for life are actually rules they just 
absorbed from their parents without even realizing it and they never question them uh, or some type of say meditation app that they can use in the morning for 10 minutes a day for 10 days to see what the effect is um, that's that's for the time being at least that's I think why I'm here so I am uh, moving towards the mountain like you said but who knows because <laughs> I might get distracted and do some water skiing on the way there I love it Last question. Who is Tim Ferriss and what is his mission? What's the mission of this book? Tell us that to finish up if you would. Who are you at your core? Tim Ferriss is a is a very imperfect creature with a lot of curiosity and a high pain tolerance who is willing to test the extremes so he can report back and help everyone who is not eager to push themselves to that self-incineration point and my goal my drive my mission all of that if I had to think of it this is the constant and it is that I want to create a benevolent army of hundreds of thousands millions of people who are creative problem solvers the best creative problem solvers the world has ever seen and in turn each of those people can teach 10 100 1000 or more people to do exactly the same thing that's that's what I'm trying to do I'll add my own uh, my own criteria. I'd say a man with a gigantic heart as well. You left that part out. And somebody <laughs> is truly a blessing in millions of people's lives, including my own. So it's been a privilege to visit with you again, my dear friend. People pick up Tools of the Titans. You can go to, to the www.toolsofthetitans.com and you get description and a what, sample chapter of the book. Or you can get it on Barnes & Noble, Amazon, anywhere. It's out officially as of when? It's out officially as of December 6th. So... It is imminent, right around the corner. Perfect. Uh, and uh, there's some folks who are already getting their books shipped, apparently. So it's it's available, and it is it is out. And I, I really, I feel very very comfortable recommending people check it out. I think it's I think it's my best work, and it's it's it was fun for me to write, and I think that makes it fun to read. That's beautiful. So, I really appreciate the time, Tony and Mary, and uh, you guys rock. This is always fun for me. Well, we love it personally, and I'm excited for so many people to to take in the best of what you pulled out of those 200 interviews and the synthesis of it. It's an extraordinary gift to give everyone. Thank you, Tony. Always a pleasure to talk to you, Tim. Can't wait to check out the book. I'll stop stalking your dog on Instagram. That's my Tim Ferriss favorite. <laughs> but I look forward. I'm going to read your book. So there, I'll give your dog a rest. I, well, I appreciate it. Molly, I'm sure yes. would love to play with you. I can't wait. And, uh, That's what we I was will, hoping you'd say. <laughs> we, we, will, we will all hang soon, and uh, and I'll introduce you formally to my, my dear Papa Molly. Thank you. Okay. God bless, brother. Take good care of yourself. Same to you. Happy holidays. Bye-bye. Thanks, Tim. The Tony Robbins Podcast is directed and hosted by Tony Robbins and Mary Buckite. Carrie Song is our executive producer. Strategy and distribution by Anna Yorg and Tyler Culbertson. Jamie Carvajal and Adriel De La Torre are our digital editors. Copyright Robbins Research International.